morning. Um, but first, this is a bit of interactive time. Put your hand up if you've ever bought anything off of eBay. Most people. All right. Well, if you have used eBay to shop or you've browsed it, you'll know this, that sometimes it can be a little risky, and sometimes people don't get exactly what they expected when it finally comes in the mail. They open the box, and they look at it, and they regret ever using eBay. Um, I found some examples of this, of people who really got ripped off. And the first, okay, we're going to have slides of what came in the mail. This first guy bought a $2,000 pair of shoes off of eBay, and uh, it came in the mail, and it looked similar, only it was cardboard. So <laughs> I don't know if he shopped on eBay ever since then. But uh, this next one I think actually happens quite a bit. This guy ordered a PS4, and it finally came, and he ended up spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars on a nice shiny rock. So hopefully that never happens to anyone here. Uh, this next guy, uh, it's kind of a before and after picture. He found this embroidered rug carpet for his house, and so he bought it, and then he holds it up to the camera to show us just how it, just how it looked. <laughs> That's funny, and it, I think that would have gone perfectly, actually, with uh, the pillows that he also ordered off of eBay. There, he's got his rug, he's got his pillows. Moral of the story, be careful. There's one more, actually, this is my favorite. So someone bought an iPhone 7 on eBay, and they didn't get an iPhone 7, but they got an iPhone 3, and an iPhone 4, and a Yu-Gi-Oh card. So... This was the most confusing to me. <laughs> Wasn't sure what was going on there. Maybe the person felt bad, but yeah, anyway. But again, if you've used eBay, you'll know that you don't always get what you expected. And this is also true in life. Sometimes we expect something to turn out a certain way, and it doesn't. Or we've been promised something, maybe by our parents when we were a kid, and then our parent forgets that they ever promised that. And then we're just disappointed. In the Bible, there's actually tons of examples of this happening, of people who received promises. Not that they didn't receive them, but people who received promises and felt confused. They felt unsure why they weren't getting what they expected. For example, the Bible promises us, as Christians, freedom from sin. But obviously, sometimes it doesn't feel like we're free from sin. It promises, Jesus says, that he's come to give us abundant life, but often it doesn't feel like that. And God's people throughout the Old Testament, throughout history, felt the same. They looked around, they'd see these other nations around them who weren't following God, and those other nations were successful. They were prosperous, they were rich, they had better armies, and God's people weren't like that. And so they'd get confused about why, if God's promised us all these things, this isn't what we expected. Why doesn't it seem like those things are happening? And we see God working through history for thousands of years. And this is what we're going to see in this text for this morning. That through thousands of years of history, God worked, he controlled things, and he did exactly what he said he was going to do. But the people were confused. They're confused like us, and often we order things on eBay and we're confused when we open it because it's not what we expected. Now, God doesn't rip us off like that, but often the promises that he makes, they come in a way 
that we don't expect, and usually in a way that's better than we expect. But the point of this passage, as we're going to see, and as we're going to unpack, is this, that God always follows through on his promises, and he usually does it in ways we don't expect. So last week, we were kind of coming to the grand finale, or not-so-grand finale, of the life of Noah, this man who God chose to build an ark. Uh, Him and his family were saved because of their righteousness, and the whole world was destroyed by a flood. But then Noah and his family got a chance to have a fresh start. But then Noah messed it up, and he got drunk, and he sinned. And today, what we're going to be looking at is actually the overflow of that. So Noah's sin, his way that he messed up, uh, then how does that affect his kids? How does that affect generations and actually world history following that? And so we learned about Noah. We talked about his role. But today we're in Genesis 10. And Genesis 10 is basically uh, a genealogy. <laughs> it's a list of Noah's three sons and all of their sons and their sons and so on. And we get to see the nations that descend from them. But before we look at that, I want to just give us a bit of a refresher because ham is really important here, not the meat, the person here. In Genesis chapter 9, I'm going to read 9 verse, starting in verse 20 to the end, uh, just to refresh us. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his, brother, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across the shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that, they, that, so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. And may God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years until he died. So when I read that, that curse on Canaan, first thing I wonder is, why is Noah so severe? Okay, Ham goes in, sees his father accidentally, goes and tells his brothers what he saw. His brothers cover him up. And then Noah is extremely angry at Ham when he wakes up, cursing his children, all the generations to follow, and so why? It doesn't really make sense to us. But there's two reasons, uh, kind of related, and it means that we have to understand the culture of that time. So a father, um, it's much like today, but almost even more so, the father's role in the family was dominant, he was the leader, he was the one who fought for the family and represented the family, And extremely important things to him were respect and honor and leadership and power. But in that culture also, if a son would see his father naked and the father was exposed, then in a way that diminished his role as the leader of the family. It took away his respect that he had uh, as the dominant kind of alpha male that was stripped from him. And uh, yeah, and so that is one reason why this punishment was so severe. And we're going to see the other later. And even though it was an accident, uh, Ham sees his father, and so that's done. We can't help that, but I don't think that's what Ham's being punished for. As we see later, Ham goes, and he tells his brothers what he saw. As we understand this more, that 
This was a way of diminishing a father's respect and diminishing his leadership over a family. It's likely, very likely, that Ham was taking this opportunity to try to steal Noah's status and not just take it away from Noah, not just diminish Noah's respect, but to take that for himself. He goes, he brags over to his brothers, tells them what he saw, tells them how he triumphed over his father in a way. And what Ham's trying to do here is he's trying to make his family line, because he wasn't the firstborn. In those days, the firstborn son, whoever was the oldest son in a family, his family to come, his descendants were thought to be the most successful. They were going to be the most dominant, the most powerful among all his siblings. And so what Ham's trying to do here is he's not the oldest, but he's trying to use this thing that he saw, use this situation, this sinful situation, to his advantage. He's trying to use it to make him more important than the rest of his brothers. He's trying to make his family line a family that's going to dominate over the families of his brothers. And so that leads us into this question. If Ham does this, if Ham's the one bragging, if Ham's the one diminishing his father's respect, then why is Canaan the one who's cursed and not Ham? Noah's, when God's uh, cursing Canaan through Noah, he says, cursed be Canaan, the lowest of his slaves will be to his brothers. He doesn't say anything about Ham. But there's two reasons. First, this is actually is God's way of punishing Ham, is to pronounce this against Canaan. Since Ham was trying to establish his family and all his descendants and those to come after him as the most important, then by cursing Canaan, his firstborn son, Canaan represented the rest of his descendants. Canaan was going to be the one through whom Ham would establish his family. And so this curse against Canaan is God's way of punishing Ham. And also because, uh, second reason, and this kind of brings up a question that a lot of people ask, is how is this fair? How is it fair that Ham sins and then Canaan is punished? See, if that happened nowadays, people would freak out. If a father did something wrong and then the son was put in prison because of it, that doesn't make sense. And it's not right. But in that, we're assuming that Canaan and Ham's descendants were innocent which as we see later, and I'm going to elaborate on this later a little bit, they were far from innocent. Actually, Ham's descendants, they picked up on Ham's way of life, of promoting themselves, of doing whatever it takes to get to the top. And we get a description of what this led to in uh, the stories of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you have a chance, you might even want to write down to read Genesis chapter 19, where we just get a little glimpse of those cities and the point at which Ham's descendants had come to of child sacrifice, they were doing that in order for their gods to give them better crops, of fighting, of all kinds of immorality, and so they weren't innocent. This isn't a case where Ham did something wrong and Canaan is suffering for it. Canaan and all of Ham's descendants, they're suffering for their own sin. And so with that, I'm going to introduce this genealogy, this genealogy that shows us how this plays out and how all of Noah's three sons uh, play out and spread through history. But as we read this, I want us to see this through the eyes of Shem. Because Shem, specifically, those were the people that eventually, and even now, God would choose to be his people. Eventually, Abraham, who was a descendant of Shem, would be chosen by God uh, as a patriarch of the nation of Israel. And so, 
this is why I want us to look through the perspective of Shem. Because if we're followers of Jesus, if you're someone who believes in Jesus, if you're a Christian, then you're God's people too. And this has to do with us. You see, God chose Shem, and he promised Shem that he would ultimately triumph over his brother Ham. And this is reinforced uh, multiple times as we read through Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament. And so we're going to read Genesis 10 and talk about how this actually does play out. And just so you know, if you have any problems with my grammar, feel free to talk to me afterwards. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. How am I doing so far? Those are the easy ones. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Rephath, and Togarmah. The sons of Jabin, Elisha, Tarshish, the Kittites, the Rodanites. From these, the Maritimes people spread out into their territories by their clans within their languages, each with his own language. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabtika. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush was the father of Nimrod. This is an interesting little snippet we're going to talk about later. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalne in Shinar. From, the land, from that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Reboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kala, which is the great city. Egypt was the father of the Luddites, the Anamites, the Leibites, the Naphetites, the Pathrusites, the Kasluhites, from which the Philistines came. We see the Philistines a lot later in the Old Testament. And the Kaphirites. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Averdites, Zemurites, and Hamathites. Later, the Canaanites' clans scattered, and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon toward Gerar as far as Gaza and then towards Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and the languages in their territories and nations. And now Shem, the last son. Sons also were born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber, the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, Meshach. Arphaxad was the father of Shelah, and Shelah the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg, because in his time the earth was divided. That's a reference to uh, the Tower of Babel in the next chapter. His brother was named Joktan. Joktan was the father of Almadad, Shelef, Hazumarebeth, uh, Jera, Hadam, Azel, Dikla, Obal, Abimel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. These were all the sons of Joktan. The regions where they lived stretched from Misha towards Safar in the, hill, in the eastern hill country. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages, in their territories and nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, nation, from these the nations spread over the whole earth after the flood. Well, that's the kind of chapter that when I was a little kid, I would just skip while I'm reading through the Bible. And I can see why, but... I got the privilege this week of looking into it and uh, seeing all that God's doing through this chapter. And uh, 
first thing that I find really interesting, and I'm not really going to talk about this much, but just the link that it has to real-world history. Like, we see Egypt, uh, Nimrod with Babylon, Assyria, two big world powers in uh, that time and place in history. Just, yeah, I love that connection to the real world. But anyway, as we look into this passage, and as we consider God's promise to Shem, the first thing that we see clearly through this is that God's sovereignty is always certain. God's sovereignty is always certain. This word sovereignty is kind of a funny word sometimes, and there's different ways we can think about it. Like, a lot of times when we think of who's sovereign, well, the queen is sovereign. Think of these rulers or kings in other countries, especially England. But that's not what it means when it's talking about God. It's not talking about that he has some power over some groups of people and that he's in control of some things, even if he's in total control of certain countries. It means that God has absolute control over everything, everywhere, all the time. Got to memorize that. Absolute control over everything, everywhere, all the time. You don't actually have to memorize it, but it's good to. Colossians 1.17 uh, really talks about this. It says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So everything is here because of God, and everything stays here because of God. As soon as God stops holding everything together, everything's destroyed. In Psalm 135, verse 6, The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth and in the seas and all their depths. There's nothing God can't do. There's nothing beyond his power to do. So that's his sovereignty. And there's two ways that God's sovereignty is shown in this text. And the first is this, that God controlled history. He controlled world history for thousands of years in order to reach every nation with his grace, in order to reach every nation with the good news of Jesus. Acts 1.17, the Apostle Paul, he's preaching this sermon. This is after Jesus has died and rose again. And he's not preaching this sermon to Israel. Israel had exclusive, or at least they thought they had exclusive rights to God. They were the only nation that God chose to reveal himself to. But then Paul here is talking to people who aren't Israelites. They're just regular people. They're Greeks. And he says this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out uh, their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. So what he's saying here is God sovereignly knew he had absolute control over the exact divisions of nations, over the exact people groups that would lead thousands of years later to a maximum number of people hearing the gospel, hearing about what Jesus has done for us, a maximum exposure to the good news of Jesus. And this same Apostle Paul is talking later as he writes the book of Ephesians. He says this uh, to the church there in Ephesus. And these also, they're not Israelites. These aren't the nationality. They weren't the right nationality. But he says, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
And then he continues in 3 verse 6. This mystery that is, is that, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. So God's plan all along wasn't to have one nation that knew God, other nations that didn't. It was that every nation, like we said, would know about God, would be reached with God's grace, and that every nation, people from every nation and people group, would be united under one king named Jesus. And we're living in that time. We're living in this time of the kingdom of God, each one of us specifically. And each one of us specifically, I think what this verse is getting at is that if we're here, if we're here this morning, if you're sitting in a seat or in the sound booth or anywhere, God's brought you here specifically, sovereignly, out of his total control over history so that you have the opportunity to respond. The opportunity to respond to his grace that he's reaching out to you with through Jesus. But let's get a bit more specific to Shem right now, though. This promise to Shem, it wasn't just this general that God's going to make himself known everywhere, which is amazing that he does. It was a specific promise. It was a promise that Shem was going to have freedom and he was going to have dominion over the descendants of Ham. And we see this actually exactly what God says is going to happen, though we'll learn later that this isn't the way they expected it to happen. In the book of Joshua, this is exactly what happens. As uh, God leads through Joshua, he leads Israel into their promised land, which was where the Canaanites were living. They wiped them out. It wasn't the way that they expected it to happen. But God's chosen people finally had freedom and dominion over Ham. Again, I said I'd elaborate on this, and I think this is kind of where it comes up more, that these Canaanites that were living there, a lot of people have problems with the Israelites being commanded to go in and destroy them, I mean, these are just another group of people, and no one's perfect, so how is it right that God can choose to do this uh, to these people and drive them out of their land and have them destroyed? Uh, Deuteronomy 20 gives us an answer to that. It says God is preparing Israel for what's going to come, preparing them to enter their promised land and take over. He says, however, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave anything alive that breathes. Completely destroy them. That's harsh. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, and this is the reason why that has to happen, otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. So it was better, at that point in history, it was better to have no more Canaanites on the face of the earth than further child sacrifice for their disgusting, evil, wicked ways that they worshipped their gods, sacrificing their children so their gods would give them better crops. It was better for that to be totally wiped off of the face of the earth than for there to be a chance of that to spread to other nations and to other people and have evil spreading around the whole earth. God was sovereign over that. He knew the effect that each option was going to have, and he chose the option that was better. God was sovereign all throughout history, over this and over fulfilling his promise uh, to Shem. God's sovereignty is always certain, but God's people don't always prosper. God's people don't always prosper. It's hard to read this text without noticing a lot of intentional emphasis on this guy named Nimrod. I'm going to read his little uh, chunk of scripture again. That's 10 verse 8. 
Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalna, and Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kala, the great city. There's one thing I notice from that paragraph. It's that Nimrod is successful. Nimrod's successful. He's powerful. He's establishing empires. He's got an army. He's a mighty warrior. And the two empires, it says he found cities of Babylon and of Assyria uh, and Nineveh. Those are those are uh, cities that become major world powers years down the road. They become the dominant, the most powerful nations in the whole world. And Nimrod's doing all this. He's successful. And Shem's descendants would have seen that. They would have seen Nimrod over there as they looked at the people around them. Nimrod and all these Canaanites, all these other nations, they're successful. They're starting empires. They're more economically advanced. And Shem would have wondered, what is going on? Because God didn't promise to him that he was going to have freedom and dominion over us. He actually promised that to us, that we're going to have dominion over him. And now this guy's getting all the success, and we're not. The question is familiar, because I think most of us ask that to ourselves a lot of the time. Why does this guy get all the success? He's not even following God. Why is it that God lets him be successful, achieve these things, have more career advances, have a better family than me? I mean, I'm doing what I can to obey God, and so he owes me a good life. Why doesn't God just make life nice for us? It's this predominant mindset in Christianity, especially in North America, that God's plan for us always includes prosperity and health and wealth and a good family and a good marriage and a good reputation, but it doesn't. And we see this on the Bible and also in our experiences and examples of people around us that someone can follow God with all their heart, and their marriage will still not go smoothly. They'll still have a lot of challenges. Someone can follow God, obey him in everything or as well as they can, and their kids, when they have kids, still don't turn out well. They don't all become pastors. There's this thought that goes through a lot of our minds that if we follow God, if we do our part, God owes us a good life. We do our part, and so God does his. But that's not what's taught in Scripture. That's not what Christianity is about. And that's not what Jesus has called us to. There's this man named Job. Uh, you might have read his story in the book of Job. Job is surrounded by a world that doesn't follow God. But Job does. He's righteous. It's kind of like the description of Noah when we're introduced to Noah. He's righteous and blameless. He gets a good, a good introduction. He follows God. And he's rich. He's rich. He has more cattle and animals than everyone else. He has a good family. His kids are doing great. Uh, he's married. He's got a wife. He's popular. Everyone loves him. And things are going well, and he's successful. But then what happens is Satan, like he accuses everyone, he accuses Job in front of God. He says, Job, this guy, the only reason he follows you, God, is because you've given him all this stuff. It's because you've made him rich, because you've made him healthy, and you've given him a good family. And so God tests that, and he allows Satan to take everything away from God, everything away from Job. Job loses his health. He loses all his wealth. He loses his children. His wife turns against him. But even in that, Job does not turn away from God. 
because Job understood this, that a relationship with God, it's not about things going well. It's not about what God does for us. It's not about how God protects our well-being. It's about living for God even when things don't go well. Even when the situation that we're in isn't the situation we want to be in, it's about making much of God, not making much of ourselves, helping the world to see how great God is through our relationship with him, not using God so that the world will see how great we are. Well, that's what we all slip into at some point. And I'm guilty of slipping into this, of making my relationship with God about what can God do for me? What can I get out of this? What can my reputation or whatever get out of this? And the descendants of Shem, they also live with this. They looked around. They saw these people who were successful, who were prospering, and they wondered why. They were confused because people don't always prosper. You see, Shem wasn't doing the great things like Nimrod was doing, starting empires, and Shem wasn't advanced in military or economic structures. God allowed these other nations, the Canaanites, the Philistines, who we see later, they're way more advanced in their weapons. They're way more advanced in their economy. And this kind of reminds me, uh, if you were here when Pastor Kyle was preaching on Genesis chapter 4, there's another genealogy there where we see Cain, this man who rejected God, and his descendants who also reject God, and they're successful. They're inventing things, they're becoming rich, they're getting good social infrastructures. But then there's the descendants of Seth who walk with God. They're obedient. But God doesn't give them that same success. And that would have been confusing. We don't glorify God, though, by making a name for ourselves. We glorify God by making him great, by making him seem great as he is to the rest of the world, not by making it about us. Jesus calls us into that life. He calls us into a life that's different uh, from what the world around us lives, that's different from what we might have grown up being told that life was about. Because Jesus didn't come to this earth to promote, to promote himself. He didn't come to the earth uh, to make himself look awesome, to make everyone look up to him. He came to the earth to die. And that death was driven not by a love for himself, it was driven by a love for God and a love for us. And I'm guilty of this temptation to make it about myself, but Jesus actually calls us into a life not of self-promotion, not of promoting ourselves, making ourselves look great to everyone, but of self-denial, denying ourselves, making it not about us, but about Jesus. To show the world how great he is, not how great we are. So God's sovereignty in this, it's always certain. God's people don't always prosper. And third and last, God's kingdom is usually confusing. His kingdom's usually confusing. What does that mean? It means all these promises that God makes to us as Christians promise that we're going to have life and have it abundantly, not just regular life, but abundant life, that we're going to have eternal life, that we're going to be free from sin, we're going to have victory over sin in our lives. God's promised us those things, but it doesn't always feel like those are true. It's confusing. And God promises us, he promises us that we're going to be in his presence forever. But now in this life, as we know, we don't always feel like we're in his presence. We feel like he's far away sometimes, sometimes that he's even forgot about us. We don't feel excited to read the Bible sometimes. We don't always feel excited to pray. And we feel like that shouldn't be. If we're following God, then it doesn't make sense that this should be boring to us. And when we encounter sickness or tragedy, as a lot of us have, 
that's confusing. Because if God is really watching out for us, if he's really our heavenly father who loves us and who's working everything for our best interests, then why are we sick? Why is there tragedy in our family? There was a confusing time for Shem. God continues to elaborate on this promise that he's going to have freedom and dominion over Ham. But then what happens for 400 years before that happens? For 400 years, Shem's descendants, the Israelites, they are actually slaves to Egypt. Then we read this Genesis chapter 10, Egypt, what? He's one of the descendants of Ham. This is exactly the opposite of what's supposed to happen. They would have been so confused at this point. They're in slavery to Ham's descendants rather than having dominion over them. And for 400 years, they're left in confusion and doubt until God's promise is finally fulfilled. What we need to hear this morning is that when it's confusing, when we don't understand, God has a lot more in store for us than what we expect. God has way more and way better than we think is going to happen. Because in this, as uh, Shem was slaves to Egypt, as they're waiting for their promise to be fulfilled, God's also making other promises to them. The Old Testament is filled with these promises that there's going to be a man one day, not just to give them dominion over this one people group of Ham's descendants, but in the whole world. There's going to be this man called the Messiah. That's what they called him. He's going to free God's people. He's going to start an everlasting kingdom that will spread over the whole earth. There's going to be no more evil or suffering in the world ever. They're excited for this guy. But later, thousands of years later, people were in Rome, or God's people were in Rome. And God, because of their disobedience, they became slaves again, uh, or rather subject to the Romans when the Roman Empire was spreading. And they were really excited for this Messiah, because the Messiah, in their minds, was going to free them from Rome, was going to take over Rome, and they were going to be successful. They were going to be top dogs in the world one more time. They were going to succeed. They were going to be powerful. And then he came. The Messiah came. But he wasn't the way that they expected. He didn't fight Rome. He didn't conquer Rome. God's people actually hated him so much that they gave him over to Rome to have him crucified the most brutal way to kill someone. They did that to their Messiah because he didn't fill their expectations and they were confused. But God is sovereign. Remember that. He's sovereign and even through Jesus' death, it was his plan for Jesus to die. His, plan, his death was a part of that because through his death, Jesus took all our sin, all our rejection of God, all our self-promotion, all the ways that we make it about ourselves. Jesus took that on himself and God punished him for that and he died so that we don't have to be punished for that forever. And he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead so that we can have freedom and victory over sin. He conquered death so that we can conquer death and live with him forever. That's his promise, eternal life, abundant life. God's promises are possible because of this resurrection. His plan, his sovereign plan through this was better than anyone could have possibly imagined. But they are confused. Because God's kingdom is often confusing. But always, God's plan is better than what we expect. God's sovereignty is always certain. His people don't always prosper. His kingdom's often confusing. 
But in the confusion, God promises a better and more fulfilling life than we could have come up with for ourselves. And he always follows through on his promises. I'm going to pray and then invite up the worship team to close us off this morning. Father, thank you so much for your promises. Thank you so much that you give us something to live for, so much greater than living for ourselves. Thank you that uh, even when we have doubts about, our prom- or about your promises, even when we have doubts that uh, this is all real or that you're really going to follow through, thank you that you always do, and that you assure us in your word of your power and of your sovereignty. We just pray that as we go out from this place that you would fill our hearts with your spirit that you would encourage us uh, to dive into your word, to saturate our lives uh, with the Bible and with prayer, and to constantly be reminded that you're so much better than living for ourselves, God. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.